Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about how do I get to my doctor now is Cheryl Fallman. Cheryl has over 30 years of experience as a clinician and researcher in health policy, focusing on a variety of areas, including cost, access, and quality of care. In addition to being a pharmacist, she went on to get her MBA and PhD. Her research work is focused on developing and validating healthcare quality measures across different types of care. Cheryl has worked at a number of large research organizations that work with Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurers. But her most important work has been helping people steer their way through the healthcare system. How are you doing today, Cheryl? Fine. How are you, Jason? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. For those that are joining us live, uh, please type your questions in. Um, and with time permitting, we'll do everything in our power to get those questions answered. So, Cheryl, let's get started. The title okay. of the webinar today is How Do I Get to My Doctor Now? Okay, well, welcome everyone, and I look forward to your questions. Feel free to type them into the chat box um, as we go through the presentation, and Jason will take care of letting you know what's going on. Absolutely. So I figured I, figured I would give you a brief overview of what we're going to talk about first, um, sort of how how COVID-19 has impacted how and where you receive care. And, you know, are the ho are hospitals one-stop shopping now? And what you may find is there are now some types of surgery happening in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And what does all of this have to do with how, how much you pay and what your bill is? And of course, the most important thing is to ask questions, ask questions, and ask more questions. And if you can, bring somebody with you to ask more questions. Okay, so does this scene look familiar? Before COVID-19, you'd go into your doctor's office regularly, as in the before scene. You'd, you'd, you'd have to commute there, which I don't know where you live, but where I live, that can be very time consuming. You wait in the waiting room, you wait in the exam room, and then you finally see the doctor. It takes about 10 minutes or so. And if you're really sick or enough time was scheduled, you might actually get more than 10 minutes. But I think at this point, we can all agree with the statement, COVID-19 has brought change. I don't know about you, but I've never spent as much time at home as I have in these past six months. I mean, at least some things are starting to get back to a new normal. Um, we can now go to the grocery store and actually find things on the shelf. Um, but probably one of the biggest areas that COVID-19 has changed is how you get your health care. When this all started back in March, everything came to a crashing halt and almost everything shut down, including many doctor's offices and elective health care like dentists and eye exams. So everything was and is different now even. No one, at that time, no one really knew what to do and people were and still are scared. COVID-19 is scary. So how do you get to your doctor now? I mean, COVID-19 has brought access to care to the forefront for people who've never had a problem going to see their doctors. But this has been a long problem in rural areas and in areas without doctors for a long time, even before the pandemic started. 
I mean, many rural hospitals use uh, telehealth to consult with specialists at larger hospitals because they didn't have them. Even some mid-sized hospitals were using telehealth um, to have specialists monitor their intensive care units. But now COVID-19 has really changed everything. And now many visits, no matter where you are, are done via telehealth. So what does telehealth really mean? I mean, what does that after picture really mean? Most people think of telehealth as a visit between a physician and their patient that happens over a computer, a phone, or a tablet. And that's part of it. But did you know you were already likely using other types of telehealth before this all started? For example, you're already using telehealth when you contact your pharmacy for a pres prescription refill or to ask questions. It's called telepharmacy. Or if you've ever been in an ambulance and you were hooked up to send an EKG while you were en route to the hospital. That is cardi tel carta tel sorry, car telecardiology. Sorry about that, guys. So why wasn't this used more commonly with doctor's offices? It seems it makes sense, right? There are a few reasons. The most common one being the doctors weren't paid for telehealth visits for most services. Um, it, even for those services they did get paid for, they were paid a lot less than for an in-person office visit. So there really was no incentive for the doctors to move to telehealth. But when the coronavirus started spreading across the country, one of the first things that Medicare and many insurance companies did was to expand the telehealth services so that they pay for and pay close to the same rate as an office visit. So that provided incentive to the physicians, and this impacted Medicare, Medicaid, and most private insurance companies. Unfortunately, many of these are scheduled to end when the public health emergency that the government had declared in March ends. And right now it is supposed to end on October 22nd, 2020. The, this public health emergency may be extended, which in turn would extend the telehealth benefit. But many organizations are also lobbying Medicare and Medicaid to continue the benefit, uh, regardless of the public health declaration. Um, and in June of this year, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid proposed a rule that would permanently expand the telehealth, even after the pandemic has passed. So right now that rule is under consideration. But as this remote patient monitoring becomes more common during COVID-19, this can also improve the quality of the patient care. You're engaging patients, you're taking daily biometric readings like blood pressure and pulse rate and you talk with them about your symptoms and you ask you're asked assessment questions and doctors and hospitals now can sometimes receive early warning that your condition may actually be deteriorating and then they can make more decisions about how to provide care whether a phone call or a video visit or even to have home care a home care worker go in for a more in-depth assessment um, 
And sometimes it may result in an actual visit to your primary care physician. And telehealth is a big deal now. Other companies are now starting to offer telehealth. I was reading last week that Sam's Club now offers a quarterly subscription-based telehealth benefit for its members for $1 per visit. I mean, Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid all offer telehealth, whether you have insurance or not. So this change is here to stay. Okay. And so I don't know about, I don't know how many people who are logged into this webinar remember the television show Dr. Kildare with Richard Chamberlain or maybe St. Elsewhere with Mark Harmon. Many shows about hospitals showed emergency rooms only. Think the show ER, that was only, or surgery like St. Elsewhere or Chicago Hope. This, this was the case for many decades where hospitals were emergency rooms, surgery, that, you know, that was it. Uh, even when I worked in a hospital in the late 80s, almost everything that was done in our hospital was done to patients who were actually admitted overnight. But I'm sure you've all experienced this. Times are a-changing. I don't know about where you live, but where I live, there are three hospitals and at least nine urgent care centers or standalone emergency rooms within 10 miles of my home. And there are 88 hospitals and urgent care centers within 25 miles of where I live. Needless to say, there's a lot of places I can obtain care. And as, as hospitals compete to capture people and thus their insurance dollars, these hospitals have begun to realize that they can no longer just offer services where you're admitted to the hospital and you have to stay for a few days. So as a result, most hospitals have greatly expanded the services they offer, ranging from doctor's office visits to day surgeries. In technical terms, this means a hosp hospitals are working to achieve clinical integration which means that the hospitals are striving towards providing coordinated care across multiple settings. Under this, under this new model, the hospital may own the doctor's practice, the ambulatory surgery center, standalone ERs, and nursing homes. You can go to the doctor's office for a regular physical in the same place that you might go for surgery. Okay. So, yeah, speaking of surgery, sometimes surgeries are now occurring in places that you might not expect. So the advancement of technology and COVID-19, um, paired with patient comfort and convenience of physicians' offices, has resulted in a shift to where many surgical procedures are currently performed. Um, many Procedures that were once performed only in hospital outpatient facilities or ambulatory surgery centers are now being performed in doctor's offices. I'm pretty sure that we all know someone who's had cataract or eye laser surgery. But I didn't bet you you didn't realize that there were a whole range of doctor's offices that can potentially do surgery, including vascular, dermatology, ear, nose, and throat, Interventional, interventional cardiology, 
and radiology, gynecology, pain management, plastics, and urology. Um, about half the states and DC actually regulate the doctor's offices that do surgery. So, I mean, doctor's offices doing surgery, they offer you a few advantages. You can usually go home almost immediately after the surgery is done, and you're exposed to far fewer germs than if you were in a hospital. Um, but there are, are also downsides. Because the offices are not as heavily regulated um, as the other settings that we're going to talk about, you're potentially at additional risk. So before you select this option, make sure you ask your doctor lots and lots of questions. And these can include things like, who's doing the anesthetic? What type of anesthetic are you using? Are they accredited by the state? What about pain management? And what happens if something goes wrong? What are their backup plans? So the, the next type of or setting that you're probably familiar with are ambulatory surgery centers. Um, these are, or ASCs is the other name for them. Um, they're healthcare facilities that focus on providing same day surgical care. So this can be diagnostic and, and preventive, such as your last colonoscopy was done in one of these. But new technology and techniques have made outpatient surgery safer and much more comfortable. And so now ASCs are very specific in that they only treat patients who qualify for outpatient treatment. But with COVID-19, um, this has forced some of the doctors and, and hospitals to rethink the types of surgeries that are done in hospitals versus ASCs because they want to reduce the risk of exposure to the coronavirus. Hey, people get sick in hospitals. You don't want to go there if you don't need to. About eight years ago, I'll tell you the story. About eight years ago, I was involved in a project where I interviewed one of the top orthopedic surgeons in the country. At the time, this surgeon said he was already sending some of his hip replacement surgery patients home the same day as the surgery. He also said that within five years, he thought that most joint replacement surgery would be done either in an ambulatory surgery center, an ASC, or an outpatient surgery unit. I remember thinking this was unlikely to happen because weren't hip replacements a big surgery? Well, turns out I was wrong. In 2017, about 15% of all joint replacements were done in ASCs. Wow. And by 2026, it is projected that more than 50% of all joint replacements will be done in ASCs. So. If you qualify for a hip or knee replacement in a in a ASC, you're going home the same day. And I mean, ASCs are good. They have shown greater efficiencies with no difference in complication rates when you compare them to hospital outpatient departments. Um, there is a narrower scope of surg surgeries that are done in ASCs, but that allows for more specialized care and high patient satisfaction due to the really much smaller and more personalized teams that, that work there. 
And the selection of technology and scheduling preferences can also be tailored more. And this places ASCs at a at a, an advantage compared to outpatient hospital departments because then you got to schedule through the hospital. But before you select the ASC option, make sure you ask your doctor some questions, including, will I get to see the doctor after the procedure? What happens if something goes wrong? Because these aren't always attached to a hospital. Who will give me instructions about what to do when I leave? And of course, I would also ask about post-surgery -inf post infection rates, pain management, and quality scores, you know, for both the physician and the facility. So now hospital outpatient departments are very similar to ASCs. The primary difference is they are physically associated with a hospital, um, whereas ASCs are generally standalone facilities and they are financially independent of hospitals. So. Many of the things that I said about ASCs hold true for the hospital outpatient department, except if something goes wrong, you're at the hospital. But the thing is, you gotta make sure to ask lots of questions regardless of where you go. And I know that we're talking about unexpected places, places for surgery to be done, but just to round out things, I thought I would include hospitals. And generally, the surgeries that are done in hospitals are more complex. They may require more follow-up or monitoring that can't be done at home. And sometimes the people aren't as healthy um, and they wouldn't qualify for surgery in the other places. This lets the doctor and the hospital provide more supportive care to ensure that when you go home, you go home healthy and you won't be back for a second one. A second visit. Okay. Now, where you get your care definitely can impact your bill. But as with almost everything, it's caveat emptor or let the buyer beware. Well, everything in the hospital looks like a hospital admission. That is not always the case. Um, you're an outpatient if you're getting uh, emergency room services if you're getting observation services or diagnostic services, um, even lab tests or x-rays. Um, and if the doctor has not written an order to admit you to the hospital as an inpatient. In these cases, you are an outpatient even if you spend the night in the hospital, okay? But so that's one that's the one part of being uh inpatient versus outpatient. The next one is inpatient versus observation. And I don't know how many of you have had an experience with this, but so what happens if you slip and fall? You might be fine or you could be seriously injured. You don't know. So your first reaction is to go to the hospital or call 911 which by the way, both of these are the right thing to do. But what happens after the care is provided? The medical bills start arriving in the mail. Medicare does pay for the immediate clinical care, but it does not always pay for the care after you've been discharged from the hospital. So think about this. A husband is out shoveling the snow and he falls and breaks a hip. His wife takes him to the hospital. 
He stays for four days and then goes to a skilled nursing rehab facility for several weeks and he gets physical therapy. He goes home and then several weeks later, they receive a bill from the, from the rehab facility for the full cost of his stay. And you go, what happened? Wasn't Medicare supposed to cover this? It turns out that the husband was only admitted as an observation stay. This difference between an inpatient and observation status is extremely important because Medicare pays different rates depending on the person's admission status. Patients who are under observation status are not considered inpatients by Medicare even though you'll stay in the regular hospital bed for several days and receive the same treatment as a regular inpatient, this admission status directly impacts whether Medicare pays for any of the rehab facilities and rehab services. Medicare requires that the patient be admitted as an inpatient for a a minimum number of days before it'll cover the cost of the rehab in the skilled nursing facility. So admission for observation or outpatient, regardless of the length of stay in the hospital, does not count towards this Medicare requirement. So this can result in surprise medical bills that require payment for the full cost of the skilled nursing facility. So. I mean, you can protect yourself financially in some ways. Make sure to ask lots of questions. And the questions you want to ask are things as simple as, what is the admission status? Is it inpatient or observation? And ask every day, how long will the hospital stay be? Why are you, are you not being admitted as an inpatient? Versus an, versus an observation. Are there specific guidelines? Um, will there be a need for specialized rehab or skilled nursing after you're being discharged? And really ask whether Medicare will cover this and the future care. Make sure that you ask these questions regularly during the stay because things change on a daily basis. Um, if, the, if you are an outpatient or under observation, you will receive something called a Medicare outpatient observation notice. You're supposed to get this within 36 hours if you're, if you're in the hospital for observation. And the hospitals may also, are also supposed to explain what this can, what this means and what the financial consequences are. But sometimes, things happen and people don't get the notice. So make sure that you ask the questions. And you can ask to have your status changed from an observation to an inpatient. Um, sometimes the healthcare providers won't help you and you ask to speak with the hospital's patient advocate. Um, and you can also contact your doctor and ask him or her to explain why you need to be admitted as an inpatient. Don't be afraid to, to ask questions and use your doctor as your biggest ally and advocate. So what happens if your status isn't changed and you, and you still need therapy? 
make sure that the options are set up before you leave the hospital. So ask the doctor whether you qualify for similar care at home through Medicare home health benefit um, because Medicare will likely pay that. Or for a Medicare covered stay in an inpatient rehab facility, which is different than a skilled nursing facility. But sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. So, you know, what are some of the financial impacts depending on whether you're an inpatient or outpatient? These can be huge, like the examples we just talked about. You could be paying towards your deductible and any copayment or coinsurance for the observation stay and still be responsible for the full cost of the rehab services. Now, ASCs and hospital outpatient departments may offer identical services, but they do vary in price. So um, according to recent research, ASCs offer surgical procedures such as joint replacements, um, rotator cuff repair, knee arthroscopy, uh, MRIs at a significantly lower cost than hospital outpatient departments. Um, in fact, joint replacements are 40% less. So, but you need to be careful to ask what your insurance covers versus what you would have to pay because it isn't always less expensive to go to the ASC. The link that I provide here, which is www.medicare.gov slash procedure dash price dash lookup, um, gives you a basic idea of what the price would be in each of those facilities if you have regular um, Medicare coverage. Okay. So now remember, I started this presentation with this and I'm going to end this. Ask questions. Going to the doctor, whether you're healthy or sick, is can, can be confusing and it can be overwhelming sometimes. Um, it's almost like the two of you speak different languages. So imagine this, um, a young person and a, and a second patient, an older person, go in to the doctor. So in the first scenario, the young person goes, you know, they, they feel that they can participate, ask questions, they're an active participant in their care and in making decisions. In the second case, which is the older patient, sometimes they don't feel they can ask questions or should ask questions, and they're taught to follow the doctor's directions. So in both of these, if the patient is healthy, the visit from the patient's perspective tends to go pretty smoothly. But in either of those, if the patient is sick, the visit can be overwhelming and scary. After all, a sick patient wants the doctor, who's the expert, to do everything to make it better and go away. Now imagine what it must be like to be have multiple issues and have to absorb more information from a variety of doctors and make sure that each doctor is aware of what the other doctor is doing. This is an unfair burden to place on any patient, especially an older sick patient. But it is helpful to bring someone else with you while you're talking to your doctor. This person can listen for you, but they can also ask questions that you might forget or feel uncomfortable asking. They can also give the doctor information about things you might not notice. For example, if you snore all night, 
which might be sleep apnea, or you get up to use the bathroom every couple of hours. That might be diabetes. Doctors want to help their patients and do wish the patients would ask questions during their visit. Um, however, you know, being sick and the disjointed healthcare system, information is not shared. And I'm sure we've all had this experience. But preparing a list to bring to the doctor is the one of the best things that you can do. And preparing the questions ahead of time will help you make the most of the visit. So you don't always know what questions to ask. So there is now a free app that's called the Question Builder app. Uh, it's available at no cost from the Apple app and the Google Play Store. And you can also download this from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality website, um, so which is www.ahrq.gov slash patients dash consumers slash question dash builder. Um, this tool is designed to help you prepare and organize questions by the type of medical appointment. You can take pictures of your insurance card, pill bottles, even a skin rash. And it also lets you access um, electronic educational materials and videos. So a lot of people find it really helpful. So now it's your turn to ask me questions. Very good, thank you, Cheryl. Boy, oh boy, that's a lot to digest. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, a couple of questions have come in about patient advocacy, so I'm gonna try and put it into one question. You'd mentioned the hospital. Um, you'd mentioned mm -hmm. somebody having, taking a family member or somebody with them. What about mm -hmm. hiring a patient advocate? Is that something people should consider? And if so, what are they looking for when it comes to a patient advocate? Okay, so many hospitals do offer a patient advocate as, as part of their services, but sometimes you're right. It's better to have, to hire someone or bring someone else in. You want you want to be able to have someone you feel comfortable with and you trust. You ideally would like to have them have some kind of a medical background so that they can talk the same language as the doctor or the nurses, but that they can also translate for you so that you can understand what they're saying. And you want someone who can make their points um, and get across your needs and desires. Very good. Uh, question here, does Medicare encourage hospitals to limit patients being admitted as inpatient in order to save Medicare money? <sighs> that is a very <laughs> difficult question to ask, and that has been a, well, to answer. It's an easy question to ask, difficult to answer, and that has been an ongoing debate for as long as I've been doing research. Um, Medicare will say that no, they are not, um, they're not trying to incentivize hospitals to not admit patients. But sometimes hospitals don't admit patients when they should. But I will tell you, I mean, the technology has changed so much since I first started practicing pharmacy that a lot of things can now be done on an outpatient basis, but it's that observation state that you got to be really, really careful of because that'll that can potentially cost you a lot of money. 
Another question here on Medicare is if the doctor's office is doing surgery, is Medicare can Medicare pay for that? Uh, yes, it will pay. It will pay under Medicare Part B. So okay. you would still have to pay a copay and a deduct, like all your regular portion of it. But yes, okay. Medicare will pay for that. So this is a good question. So if telehealth is actually technically left, less expensive than traditional bricks and mortars medical care, shouldn't the charges of patients and insurance companies go down? Um, yeah, the, the thing is, it is it may be less expensive for the patient, but it isn't necessarily less expensive for the provider because most of them have had to really quickly upgrade their systems, bring in systems that are um, what are called HIPAA compliant so that they're secure enough so that they can do telehealth over you know, over the internet without anyone hacking into it so you don't get any Zoom bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that cost has added up. But the physicians, and the problem is physicians can see fewer patients if they're doing telehealth visits because I don't know about your doctor, but my physician has four waiting or four exam rooms. And every time I go there, they're all full. And he just he goes from one to another to another, and basically no break in between. Whereas with telehealth, he, he can't do that. Yeah. He can only see one person. He has to log off, log in again. You know, so it's more time consuming. Very good. Last question, uh, Cheryl. With the advancement of technology and the expansion of virtual medical care, will that make a becoming a physician make someone more or less attractive to getting into this as a career? I actually think it'll make it more attractive. Okay. And this is my feeling because there, you can develop more of a relationship with the people. You know, we talked about the, the remote patient monitoring. So yeah, you, you know, you, you take your blood pressure every day, you take your pulse rate, but then you have interaction with the physician's office. And when you do go in to see the physician or you talk to them, you're not spending all of your time talking about what's happened in the past month because they already know what's happened in the past month. You can go in and talk about sort of the accumulation of what's happened and what needs to be done for the next month. So, I mean, physicians, people go into medicine because they want to help people. And I think this will help them realize that they can help people even more. And I mean, I grew up in a small, small community um, where you didn't always have access to physicians. So this way, they you can have you can have access to a physician versus having to drive 50 miles to the nearest doctor's office. You know, so you didn't go if you had to drive that far, especially in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So. Well, once again, Cheryl, really good information here. Um, how can people find you? Well, thank you, Jason. Um, I have a company called Sincere. It's spelled S-I-N-C-E-R-A-E. And you can reach me at info at com, or I have a 1-800 number. 
1-800-697-6922. And I would love to hear from anyone who has questions. And please feel free to visit my website. I have plenty of other information up there for you if you're interested in, in other things. Very good. Oh, well, Cheryl, thanks, once again, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Um, you can find Knowledgeable Aging on YouTube. Just type in uh, Knowledgeable Aging. Subscribe to our, our YouTube page. We're updating that at least three times a week. Um, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Tunes, etc. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.